0: This is Base Layer brought to you by ARCA. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Stephanie Link who is the Managing Director and Head of Active Equities Research for TIAA Investments. Prior to joining TIAA Investments in 2016, she spent seven years at The Street as Chief Investment Officer and was the Co-Portfolio Manager and Director of Research of Action Alerts Plus, which is Jim Cramer's charitable trust. She was responsible for all premium content in the street and the daily management of charitable trust, which included macro strategy, portfolio construction, and stock selection. Stephanie graduated from Boston College with a B.S. in finance. She is currently the chairperson of the Investment Advisory Council at Baskin Ridge Presbyterian Church. And everyone knows Stephanie as a CNBC contributor and appears regularly on Closing Bell and Fast Money halftime shows. We had a great conversation about the entire market, and we talked everything from the buyback criticism that has been entering into the market. We talked about the reopening of states and the type of shape of recovery that some people are projecting and forecasting. We talked about oil, and we talked about what could be considered new defensive consumer durable type of companies out there. Is Zoom a new defensive play in the world where we're all in lockdown and quarantine and so it was a great conversation. Remember, nothing on Base Layer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're gonna hear a great conversation with Stephanie Link from TIAA Investments. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. And my goodness, I am so excited because I get to talk to Stephanie Link. Stephanie is the Managing Director and Head of Active Equities Research for TIAA Investments. Stephanie is someone that I have personally, and I know hundreds of thousands of millions of you watch on CNBC, Closing Bell, and Fast Money Halftime shows on a regular basis. I have enjoyed her pragmatism and the way that she thinks about the market. And so, Stephanie, thank you for joining us today on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: So we're going to talk a lot about, you know, the market right now, and we're going to talk about the broad-based market and a lot of the things that are happening very fast. And so what I like to do is, you know, basically what I noticed, and I'm not going to go into your bio because as I said, everyone knows if you watch the NBC, if you're a market participant, if you're an investor, you know about Stephanie, and you can check her out on online and there's lots of information about her bio. Um, We're going to jump right in because there's a lot to talk about. So on the other day, you tweeted that... You mentioned 21 states representing 46% of the U.S. GDP will be reopening the end of April, and that, in your opinion, May might be better. And so I'm curious, as we delve into all the narratives and all the trends and all the things that are happening in the market right now, what, in your opinion, does better look like? And then I also want to talk to you about what the recovery shape, you know, there's been covering the conversations about a V-shape, which I think got thrown out with the baby in the bathwater. A W shape, an L shaped. If we start reopening in May, what do you think that is also going to have the effect on that shape of the recovery? So, two questions in one. You know, you mentioned you know this twenty one states reopening forty six percent of GDP. What does better look like? And then, in terms of better, what does the the shape of the recovery look like if we start opening up in May?
1: Sure. So, I was first say that I think it's fair to say the most dense populous states will not be opening up in May, maybe not even in June. And by that, I mean, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, California, that's 27% of GDP. Those states are going to have to open eventually. But what that looks like, I don't know. In the meantime, we have Georgia opening up today. That's just a mere 2.8% of the U.S. GDP. But it is key, because if they are successful, it will give confidence to other states. They are aggressively rolling out their their reopening in terms of bars, restaurants, gyms, etc. So I think if they're successful, it's not only um, will it provide confidence for other states, but it it might change the dynamics of what states are opening and at what rate are they opening. So let's keep an eye on Georgia. Um, The two other key states I'm watching, Texas and Florida, uh because that's about fifteen percent of the US GDP. If they can open, and mainly we, as we know, they're in warm climate states, if they can reopen, that actually would also be a positive, just given the contribution to the GDP. Um what 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 I meant by that by that tweet is April is is the activity has come to a standstill. Um, i can just tell you i listened to union pacific's conference call yesterday and they went from -7% volumes in their quarter um, at, to a -22% in wow. volumes in the month of in the month of april wow. that is very very significant yeah so um, i also just listened to the american express conference call and january february were, they were amazing march came to a to a complete shutdown their TE spending which is really the big corporations, that's thirty mm-hmm. percent of their volumes, they were down ninety-five percent. Wow in the in the quarter. So again, we came to a standstill in March and then in April. And so then the May data that we're going to get about looking backwards, that you know, they always report a month after, right? So they're gonna be looking back at April, it's gonna be just devastation. I think when we go to the June data looking back at May, it'll be a less it'll be less bad because again, we might start getting some of these states. To open up, I just want to, um, uh, I just want to call out one thing that I look at. Um, the New York Fed releases a weekly economic index, and they just kind of put in a whole bunch of different things and spits out what they think is the implication for GDP and industrial production. And last week's report suggested down ten percent GDP and down thirty-five percent industrial production. So these are going to be the bad headlines we get in May, right? So it's not going to feel good when we see the data, but actually it's looking backwards. And mm-hmm. I think again, you're going to have to look a couple of months ahead to say, oh, you know what? Maybe April was the trough. Maybe April slash May was the trough. So you asked me about Z, W, Z, X, Y, whatever it is. Um, I do think it's going to be gradual to start. And then I think it does get, it does gain momentum particularly if the number of cases come down, if we get more uh, data on treatments that work, testing is going higher, Uh, testing in fact, Abbott Labs um, is making a test um, that they had 4 million available uh, this month in, in, in April, going to 20 million next month. And then eventually they think they can get to 100 million. So again, if we can get comfortable about what Georgia is doing and how that whole situation evolved, if we can get comfortable with maybe the trough of the economy and the data is April slash May, and then we can get more tests so that people feel okay about going back to work and going to various different places, then I think you will see a gradual recovery that gains momentum each month thereafter. Mm-hmm. So I don't give you a letter. I just think it's, I think it's prudent to say it's going to be a slow start, but I do think it's going to recover fairly quickly. I think consumers want to get out.
0: Right. Yeah. I would say doing all the <clears throat> at home online shopping is getting a little Boring to say the least. Um, It would be nice to actually be outside and you know interact with humans because we are humans for that matter and we're social beings. Um, I'm curious as you're talking about the recovery and you're talking about the trough and you're talking about things that we're looking at in terms of forward. Obviously, states opening, obviously testing ramping up. Another thing that we also have that data just came out is the unemployment data, and we now have about 26 million. Americans that have filed for unemployment, and so I'm curious, you know, as we talk about states reopening, that's all well and good, but those states that have had the massive amounts of unemployment, and the ones that have filed for unemployment, and those jobs, you know, getting them back, you know, when do you think, from the historical, you know, kind of perspective that you have, that not many people do, because you've been at this for a while, when you have, you know, a 2008, obviously 2008, 2009 happened, we had high unemployment. You know, it took years for that to come back. Do you think those jobs, and I know we didn't necessarily think about this before, but do you think those jobs are going to be very quick to come back?
1: Um, I don't think you're going to get 100% recovery. I really don't, because I do think that the environment has changed. And um, I know before the show, you and I were chatting that I think, and I believe you agree, that the business environment has changed. Um, We now know that we can have people working from home we now know we can probably do more with less because technology has made us more productive. So I do think you are going to see the each industry is going to change, um, and I don't believe you're going to have to hire you know, one for one back. That said, um, if you get an infrastructure bill, or even if you don't, the pent-up demand on the manufacturing side, on the industrial side of the economy, mm-hmm. it's only 12% of US GDP, but you know there's a multiplier effect there. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going, you're going to um, get certain businesses that need to hire back in terms of, you know, the the the, the, the gyms, for example, the mm-hmm. restaurants, for example. I don't, again, I don't think you're going to get it back 100%, but I do think you're going to see a pretty big recovery, um, and that once we get those numbers to start to turn and inflect, people will feel better. Confidence mm-hmm. will be better. I mean, consumer confidence today, sentiment actually went up this past wow. month. So I think that, and I think that's because we're talking reopening, right? I mean, right. that's what I think everyone's encouraged about. So again, I mean, it depends on the duration of how long we're, the majority of the states or, or the majority of the GDP states are closed. Mm-hmm. But I do, But I do think that um, you're going to see you will see a recovery and it will happen. Um, I just think it's going to be slower and not as much as many people think.
0: And I hope to God and I say this, you know, that when we reopen that we don't start seeing infection rates go up because that would obviously be really not very good for overall economic recovery. So I'm hoping that those states that are that reopening, especially Georgia, obviously, I know that Kemp came out and that Trump actually said kind of, you know, in a. In an old WWF kind of slow your roll, I think The Rock used to say something like that. And so I I think there's obviously some battle there. And I'm hoping, as I said, that when we have reopenings, that infection rates don't go up. Here in New York, you know, on the East Coast, we obviously had a war. And uh, I thank our governor for taking the steps that he did because. As someone who has friends that are on the front line, doctors, I know that things were very ugly a few weeks into this, and that things are starting to get better, and for the sake of them, I hope that we you know, take the, the steps the right way and that we don't start uh, seeing escalations and infections. But switching gears, I want to talk about buybacks. So Chamath has been on CNBC and on the air for the last few weeks, and he has obviously started to go viral, and he's talked a lot about the buybacks. So, so there's been a bit of focus on this, and so the airlines uh, have effectively cut their buybacks because they wanted to get some of that money because obviously no one is flying right now, and they're in desperation. Um so I call it TARP 2020 money, um, and so the general scrutiny has been fairly significant on those buybacks as people are evaluating companies that are getting our tax dollars, basically money that is being printed by the Fed. Um, you know, what do you think is the the future of those buybacks going forward? Do you think that the th- this is going to have a significant impact on buybacks in a forward kind of progress? You know, I know obviously investors out there. Who are looking for dividend growth and have looked for buybacks, you know, to show you know strength in the company that have always kind of looked at those as features and not bugs, is a buyback now a bug?
1: <laughs> well, I can't, I don't think you can paint every single industry the same with the same brush because I do think that there are very steady, stable companies out there that have every right to allocate capital efficiently between buybacks, dividends, and capex and investments. And by that, those industries, I mean kind of the consumer staples, the uh, utility industry, those kinds of things. Um, P&G, McDonald's, Starbucks, Southern Company, those kind of companies, I think, have done a very good job managing their businesses, managing their market share, managing through up and downturns very successfully, and have used their cash wisely. On the, on the flip side, I think the airlines have not they know they are a very cyclical business historically they've been a boom bust kind mm-hmm. of an industry mm-hmm. for good reason because they haven't allocated their capital they're so busy wanting to make put in more seats giving less room charging more per one thing you do inside an airplane that they have forgotten what it really means to hold money for a rainy day and so to me i think the airlines are much much different than some of these other very successful, stable companies. Now that having been said, this was not their fault for sure, right? That the, this was all of a sudden business was, went from all time highs. In fact, Delta in January, when they reported their fourth mm-hmm. quarter, they said, they said business was never been better. All time highs in terms of traffic and customer satisfaction, which I don't necessarily believe that, but um, they did see very good results. And then all of a sudden, March came and it fell off of a cliff. But this is but but the thing is that that the airline should know that they are very dependent on the macro, right? They're mm-hmm. very dependent on the consumer and business and what's happening in the macro environment. So in fact, they should have saved more money for a rainy day. Would it have been enough? Probably not though, honestly, because this really this is like you know, the, the rug being pulled out from underneath. And uh, and so this is a little bit of a separate situation. But I do think that there are certain industries that, that should have a requirement. Look at the banks. Look at all the capital yeah. that they were, re- require, were required mm-hmm. to build over the last se- several years. And guess what? Now they're in a position of strength. I knock on wood because it really depends on, you know, the consumer and non-performing loans and that sort of thing. But this is not a financial crisis, this yeah. go-round. This is a healthcare crisis. And I think the financials are in much better shape. Should they be giving out, paying out dividends like they are? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I think their capital levels are adequate, more than adequate now. And the CEO of Morgan Stanley was on his conference call absolutely adamant about having plenty of cash on hand to pay out the dividends. And that people like mom and pop and you and me and all your viewers, we rely on.
0: Right. And it's interesting. I saw statistics that about a trillion dollars flooded into deposits in some of those major banks over the last quarter. Um, So that's, I think that that is amazing. And it's, you know, as someone who has lived and breathed through 2008 and 2009 and someone who is getting kind of fearful that there is going to be a run on banks over the last few weeks because of the fear out there, I'm shocked at that. And I think that's, you know, again, to to your point, they are not in the same position that they were back, you know, in, you know, 10 years ago. Um, people are actually using banks as a place to have some security, which is really interesting. It's an interesting change. So I want to talk about oil. Um it's been on everyone's mind, and uh, I had a great conversation with Billy Billy from uh, Saltstone uh, Capital the other day. It's actually live on our show, um, and Billy worked for t Boone Pickens, who I can't think of anyone better to talk to than you know someone who used to work with that guy. Um, and it's been on everyone's mind because we went from $63 on WTI at the beginning of the year to $9 just a few days ago. And then, of course, the futures markets indicated a negative $37 price per or a barrel uh, for May which is now flipped. And now I think we're seeing some negativity in the June numbers. So it's all over the place. And I think a lot of people are kind of confused and they're trying to figure out what to do. So I'm curious, any thoughts on the oil markets you know, uh, going you know into Q2 and forward? And as we start to reopen, do you think the demand side of the equation could help the market recover? Yeah. So
1: I think a lot of the reason uh, for the oil price volatility, um, one was, very technical in nature. Um, and I'm sure you guys went through that on your on your show. Um, but the second clearly is demand has just fallen off a cliff, and there's just too much supply. And we know what happens when there's more supply versus demand. And this has been the case, though, for a while now. Um, but I do think that if you don't have the airlines flying, you don't have anybody driving, you have activity coming to nothing, a standstill, it sort of makes sense that oil would have collapsed, not to the extent that it did. I think the technicals took over when we got to negative oil on the May contract, but the bottom line is I think it is you know, indicative of the global economy just coming to a standstill. So I think if we do reopen in May, um, then yes, it will help to some degree, um, but I don't think airline activity is gonna all of a sudden do a V recovery for sure. We'll get more driving and we'll get a little bit more usage in businesses Um, But for the most part, um, I don't think it goes back much over 30. Here's my issue. Most of these companies in this industry need $50 oil, maybe even $60 to $70 Mm -hmm. oil to break even free cash flow. So what does that mean? That means you're going to see a lot of reduction in, in CapEx. And that means lower production overall, which should then lead to higher prices, but not for... A while and not mm-hmm. before we see a lot of damage being done. I use the example of Chevron because that's, that's the only one that I own in full disclosure, but that one is the best company in the industry, bar none, with the best portfolio, the best balance sheet, the best allocator, allocators of capital, um, and the very strong returns. They can break even free cash flow at $48. So at $48 a barrel, that's when they break even. So even they have to cut CapEx from here should oil price stay down from here. And they, mind you, have already suspended their buyback and cut CapEx $4 billion last month. So they're on top of it. I have no no issue with them being able to, to do what they need to do so that they can pay out the dividend and they can continue to run their business. But if a company as blue chip as Chevron needs $48 oil, then I just I wonder about some of these e and companies and yeah. some of these more levered oil companies. Um, and so I think you want to tread very lightly. One last thing. My benchmark is the S&P 500. The oil weighting, the energy weighting in the S&P 500 is now 2.7%. Mm-hmm. This is down from 9% five years ago. Wow. I mean, so as an investor, I don't necessarily even need to pay attention to the energy market, to be honest with you. Sure, you're going to generate alpha because they have high beta, and on on updates, they're going to go up more than the market, but it's just something to pay attention to. If it's a big enough representation in the S&P 500, people pay attention, Mm -hmm. and it's not right now.
0: That is I didn't know the, the weighting on that had changed so dramatically. That's uh, that's a really good point. And so <clears throat> I wanna continue going on. As I said, there's a lot of narratives out there and there's a lot of things that are happening in the market in real time. So in previous downturns, um, money would go into consumer defensive plays, durables, you know, the Cloroxes of the world. And obviously, as you've um, we've all seen, Clorox has been the benefactor of this one, but other ones out there, you know, we're all at home and we're cooking more. We're not going out to the Fast eateries, the Dardans of the world out there, we're all at home, obviously under quarantine mandated. And so... What do you think in terms of a new theme, this new idea that I'm kind of postulating on the new defensives? And, you know, that would be something like a Zoom, where, as I have said before, we talked about this before, um, I think Zoom had about 10 million subscribers pre-COVID, and I think their numbers are showing about 300 million uh, subscribers now, as the world is now all working from home. Um, so. In this new paradigm shift, as Ray Dalio likes to say, you know, what do you think the new consumer, you know, kind of defensive durables are, you know, now? Or what do you think they're going to be?
1: Sure. So I I think there's always going to be a place for in a portfolio for consumer defensives, consumer staples. Um, They've always been defensive. It's always been a place to go um, in terms of time of stress. Uh, They have predictability. Um, They have consistency. They have very good uh, cash flow and good balance sheets. So that's why, um, and and people, by the way, they need their products, right? So that's why they've always been a go-to. I believe healthcare is also a place to go. Uh, I think you wanna be careful in terms of what pockets within healthcare, but in times of duress, the pharmaceuticals are often a very good place to go. I think the HMOs are also a very good place to go, and I don't think that that, that will change. So I think those two areas are on the defensive side for sure. Um, you mentioned new technologies, and certainly there's going to be a place, as we mentioned before, I think life changes after this. I do think you're going to see um, more uh, businesses and schools and a lot of different um, entities get more creative in terms of technology. So, sure, Zoom makes sense. My only question or issue with Zoom is the, ex- it, the, the, the valuation is rich. Um, it is a very high beta stock. So just know what you get into um, if you're going to get involved. But you know Cisco has WebEx and they're benefiting. Microsoft has Teams. They're certainly benefiting. Mm-hmm. Intel just reported last night, huge numbers in um, data center and PCs. So I think there are ways to play it. And then I shift over to like the Amazons of the world because we're all spending online. I look at Chewy.com. I look at Peloton. I mean, these are the things that certainly will be. These are the stay at home stocks that um, everyone talks about. But I do think that there's something there to them as well. Um, and uh, and so I do I do agree with you. I think that you you couldn't barbell your portfolio, though. Right. You don't want to own all of these stocks because they tend to have a little bit more data to them versus mm-hmm. the consumer staples. So you kind of want to marry the two.
0: Agree. And so as we're rounding out, you know, uh, we're going to get to know you a little bit on a personal level, the fun section I have with books and music. But before we do that, the last kind of idea and thoughts I'd like to get from you, you know, we're all thinking, you know, we're all focused on the numbers right now. We're focused on oil. We're focused on, you know, obviously the earnings that are coming out. Everyone's listening to those reports and hearing about the damage that the virus has had on the global supply chains and the demand side. The data is out there. What I like to think, you know, and this is kind of going to more of a Howard Marks type of approach, is second order, second layer, second level type of thinking. You know, everyone's focused on that specific pool out there where things are happening. You know, if you look, you know, yonder down the road, you know, say three, six, 12 months down the road – any narratives, any themes that you think that we should all be kind of thinking about? You alluded to some of them already, but anything that you are thinking about kind of down the road as a as an investor?
1: Yeah, so um, I just want to be careful with this because I'm going to say I want to focus on the cyclicals and the recovery stocks and the reflation stocks because we have so much fiscal and monetary policy that when we do get through this, we have such an enormous tailwind from these, ish- from these events that we want to watch copper, gold, tips. They were starting to suggest maybe more of an inflation down the road, but I don't want an entire portfolio of cyclicals because you'll get crushed between now and then. So it goes back to being having a a barbell of some quality names that you know are going to survive, and they're kind of steady-eddy growers, and they may not go up more than the market when we rally huge after we come out of this, but they are going to save you in the meantime. You know, the Starbucks, the McDonald's, the Philip Mars Internationals, those kinds of names. But at the same time, I'm listening to a Union Pacific who says, okay, it's really crummy out there right now, but we have done such a good job internally that when we come out of this, we're going to be more efficient than ever. I look at something like a freeport Macmarin where copper is very tight in the mar- out in the world, maybe not right now, but it's hard to get it because it's hard to get it out of the ground. It's different than oil. And when I look at them cutting production just to try to shore up their balance sheet, that eventually might lead to tightness down the road. I look at something like Raytheon and I look at them combining United Technologies and Raytheon. They're going to be the number two defense player in the world and their cash flow is going to generate eight billion over the next several years. So I think that there are names that you can own. Um, I would even go out as, as far as to say You could probably nibble on Boeing if you think they're going to get the 737 Max up back in the air, which I do believe they will. Um, That stock is down still 50% year to date. So there's some names that have gotten so beaten down um, that just you got to do your homework and look at the balance sheets and make sure that they can kind of hang in there for the time being. But watch gold, watch copper, watch tips to tell you if there is some sort of a reflation coming down the road. Not now but is it in 6, 8, 10, 12 months from now, you know the market is going to discount that well ahead of when you see it.
0: I agree, and you know one of the things that you know I've talked to a lot of investors about, especially family offices, is the idea of inflation. Obviously, as you alluded to, we have been printing more than ever before. Another five hundred billion package just passed, I believe today, and uh, Speaker Pelosi and others out there are saying that you know they're going to try to put more capital into states. I know there's obviously you know disagreement with McConnell that he would like to actually see you know bankruptcies, but I don't think that's going to happen. So, you know, inflation deflation, that whole conversation, I think a lot of people are obviously focusing on that too. And as someone who, in my portfolio, also focuses on things that are uncorrelated and asymmetric like Bitcoin, that's another thing that we can maybe talk about in the future and see if you have any opinions on it, but we don't have to do it now. Um, And so... As I said, you know, a quick, fun little section, get to know Stephanie a little bit more. Um, Any books that you have been reading lately? Um, Obviously, I know we're all at home juggling many different things, but anything that you've read recently that kind of resonated with you that was special and any music that you like, I I find that gives a little bit of an insight into a person's personality.
1: (laughs) It sure does. Someone gave me the ride of a lifetime for the holidays, and this is the Bob Iger book. Um, And I don't normally read you know, autobiographies or, bi- or or biographies. It's just not necessarily something that I gravitate t- towards, but I've always thought so highly of him. And um, I-, I read the book and, you know, he really talked about like three different things that really re- resonated with me, that quality matters, embrace technology, and build your brand globally. I mean, this guy totally reinvented the wheel when he took over at Disney. Mm-hmm. Um they're having some struggles now and I'm not uh, I'm not necessarily involved in Disney at the uh, from the stock level, but it's always interesting to learn about what a CEO um what their interests are, what their passions are, um a very optimistic guy, a very optimistic guy. And many times in the book he said there's no there's no re, uh, room for pessimism. And he very much like Andy Grove who was the old CEO mm-hmm. of Intel only only the paranoid survive he is like that too like you always have to be on the edge and look around and see and just stay in the in 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 front and set Mm -hmm. and and lead instead of follow so it's a really good book i really i really enjoyed it very surprising for me as i say i don't normally read them um but um i think you might find that sort of interesting and then on the music side so i kind of have two different um um themes in, in my music world um I am kind of a, a Southern rock kind of girl because my oh. brother was a musician and oh. he was um, very much into the Allman Brothers. So I was very much into the Allman Brothers. And then recently I just um, have started listening to the Tedeschi Trucks band. In fact, the lead guitarist was from the Allman Brothers. Really oh. good band, really great music. And then Chris Stapleton, I like a lot. So kind of all in that genre. And then on the other side is I'm a runner and so I want to run to kind of upbeat music and so I'm I'm big into kind of the Calvin Harris and Cat DeLuna that kind of just you know pick me up kind of music to keep me going.
0: Wow. That that portfolio of music selection is something that makes me want to hang out with you more. Going from Rambling Man to Calvin Harris is something that I also – I I, I'm a, I can go from a Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin queen to the most esoteric kind of techno dance music there is too. So that is really enlightening. And again, it's a completely selfish and greedy reason why I asked the question because it tells so much about a person's personality. So thank you I for totally that. I totally agree. Now, the last thing I like to asking. do yeah the last thing I'd like to do is if you'd like to give a shout out to anywhere where people can find out uh, more about the work you're doing uh, anyone who wants to get in touch with you and your team if you'd like to give that out you know feel free to do that
1: well, you know, I'll tell you what um, I paid a lot of attention to. Um, I've, I've gotten back onto Twitter. There's been a lot of, you know, there's always a lot of compliance stuff and marketing stuff that, that our compliance always looks at. So, but I've gotten back into Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn and I respond all the time. Um, so, uh, anytime anybody wants to get in touch with me, those two areas I think are the best to uh, at least to start. Uh, and then uh, we can progress from there.
0: Amazing. This is Stephanie Link, a pleasure and so fun to actually get in touch and uh, talk about all these things that are happening in such a unprecedented time that we're living in today. Thank you for the insight. And hopefully we can catch up with you again in a few months. And we're all out of quarantine. We're actually able to go out and do the things that we want to do. And we'll see how the market is going then. So thank you, Stephanie, for coming on. Thanks so much for
1: having me. It was a a pleasure.
0: For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on base layer, let us know subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca, at Arca, or myself, David Nage, at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space in the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing, commentary, videos, and more.